delight to be back. I uh, last week was with Paul Whiteford in a meeting, and I'm now with Pastor Paul in a meeting. I told someone I feel like I'm in a pole pole patch. <coughs> but it is a joy to be with you, and I'm going to dismiss with any greetings. You know who I am, and I know who you are. So I'm just going to read the scripture this morning, and I've asked them to put it on the uh, screen. <clears throat> It's a passage that I find literally giving all the time to me. It's multifaceted in its teachings. I was in my study just a couple of months ago and all of this began to unfold and I wanted to share it with you this morning. <clears throat> it's Paul's writings to Titus. It's in the second chapter of Titus beginning with the 11th verse and it simply says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. For we're looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. Now that's all one sentence that Paul writes. And I can tell you, I don't know if he never took a breath or what, but that is the way he has written across the years when you read his epistles. <clears throat> but I want to lift out of that passage my text, which is the 13th verse, <clears throat> where it simply says, Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I have discovered in my study that certain words in the Bible literally staggers my mind to try to comprehend them. I could give you a number of them this morning, words like the word lost. I don't know what you do when you read this matter of a lost soul. Jesus, you remember, said, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I'm not sure I want to know the depth of meaning of a lost soul. But there is another phrase that has always spoken to me and shocked me somewhat. Paul writing in the Ephesian letter when he spoke of those having no hope and without God in this world. Who can ever fathom the depths of that terrible sight of having no hope and without God in this world? I'd like to speak to you on this whole matter of the hope of God. And contrast it with this hopelessness or without hope. And when I read these words, there are certain scenes that come to my mind, and I'll spare you of most of them. But when you think of no hope, I have in my mind considered a doctor sitting by the bedside of a patient. In a semicircle around that bed are the families. They're standing there with anxious faces and tear-stained eyes with bated breath, wondering what the verdict is going to be. And the doctor sits there with his hands on the pulse of that patient, and finally he releases his grip on the wrist. And there he stands looking at that lifeless form and finally looks up to the family, shakes his head, and says there's no hope. I can assure you the wail of sorrow rises in sickening volume from a heartbroken family. <clears throat> but I can tell you, I think, another scene that is far more hopeless than that scene 
and that is the plight of fallen man in the garden, a pristine paradise that was throbbed with beauty, and one act of disobedience plunged the world in the night of devil domination. Mankind suffered irreparable loss. The entire world felt the effects of sin as this poisonous venom was injected into all creation. Divine justice stood there with drawn sword ready to strike man down. In fact, the law condemned him to the lowest pit and his own guilt separated him from the Savior, our Lord. Angels looked on in silence and fled the scene knowing there was nothing they could do. And probably at that time, the devil was holding high carnival over man's lostness. And it seemed as though everything was hopeless. But God. But God intervened. He sacrificed an animal to provide skin to cover man's nakedness and man's shame. An innocent victim you can visualize lies quivering as the last bit of its life ebbs out, staining the ground of the floor for the first time with blood since creation itself. That was a precursor, I might add, of the one who would come some 4,000 years down the road to offer himself a sacrifice for your sin and for mine. He who would bruise the serpent's head would come one day to make a way that you and I would have a hope of eternal life. Now, in this passage, I'd like to just lift three major facts that God spoke to me, and then I'd like to just share two thoughts. Look at the scripture with me concerning the facts. There are two times the word appear occurs in this passage. There's the display of God's grace in Christ at his first appearing. Then there's the disclosure of God's glory in Christ that will appear in his second appearing. And then there is the discipline of the believer's life who has accepted his grace, inspired by the hope of his glory. Now, if I'm going to be ready for that day, there are two things I want to bring to your attention this morning. Number one, the future anticipation, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the future anticipation. But that's only good if I have a finished preparation. I must prepare for that inevitable event. I've discovered there are many not only out of the church, but even in the church that are not fully convinced that Jesus is going to return. What a sad indictment that is against us. By the way, there's more evidence of his second appearing than there was of his first appearing. Nevertheless, there are many who will not accept it. They're somewhat like the scoffers in Peter's day who asked Peter, where is the promise of his coming? All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And if you remember, Peter rebuked them sharply. And he said, God's not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. You and I who believe strongly in the inerrancy of the Word of God, who stand with the Scriptures and what it has to say, we know we have a solidly based reality that Jesus 
is going to come again. In fact, Jesus himself said that the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. That's the Son of Man himself. If you remember following the resurrection of which we just commemorated over Easter, the historian Luke, who was writing to Theophilus over in the Acts of the Apostles in the first chapter, he was telling about the ascension of our Lord, and he said there were two men who stood by them in white apparel, which said, Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, taken from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. Peter himself, exhorting the ministry to be very faithful shepherds, said, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive the crown of life that fadeth not away. James, in his little general epistle speaking to the Christians, said, Be therefore patient, brethren, under the coming of our Lord. The aged John, the elder statesman, writing to the younger Christians, says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. I could lift a thousand more voices that reminds us that Jesus is coming soon. And as you look on the climate of our day, I do believe his coming is very, very near. Now the future anticipation of this blessed hope will result in the culmination of history itself. Every thoughtful person has some theory or some philosophy as to the end of organized life on this earth. In fact, you're listening to it now on television where they're talking about the end of time, the closing of the age. The question I think we need to ask ourselves is very simply, does history have a meaning and a goal? And if it does, we need to know what that goal really is. Will the drama of humanity that you and I witness every day, will it continue on war and peace, hate and love, death, and life? Will it continue on with no victor on either side? We're being told now that all of this horrific terrorism, all of these beheadings, all of these suicide bombings, and all of this literally burning people alive in cages, we're being told that's going to become the new norm. If I thought that were true, mankind is forever hopeless. I'm glad to testify to you this morning that is not true. Jesus reveals to Paul himself that all of this evil and all this madness will not triumph in the end. History is a conflict heading for a crisis, and that crisis is soon to appear. Paul tells us what the culmination of that crisis will be. Much to many people's uh, knowledge, God does have a time schedule. I think sometimes we just think things are just happening and, and we have no control over them and they're just, everything is out of control. Let me assure you, God has a time schedule. If you remember from the time the prophetic promise came from the words of our Lord when he said the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent, it took 4,000 years span before that came to fruition. But over in the Galatian letter it says when the fullness of time was come. 
God knew the time and he set the time. He sent forth his son and he redeemed them that are under the law. You and I now are into the third millennium since his first appearance. His coming now is upon us. In fact, Jesus said, be ye also ready. For he says, in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. We know on the authority of God's word and by history itself that these last days in this world will exist in a mixed state. Jesus says, as we come to the latter days, the wheat will grow with the tares. He said, don't try to pluck up the tares, leave it to God, you're liable to hurt a wheat. He said he'll send his reaping angels to take care of that in due time. Faith will be amidst tremendous apostasy. That is very evident in our world. Righteousness will conflict with iniquity. We're seeing it on every hand. But we're assured that the final word and the final victory of all of history rests with God. He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is the first cause and he will be the final conclusion. And there will be a reappearing in the time when man does not exactly know, for God has reserved that only for himself. Even his son does not know when that moment will come. But it will be a signal judgment on all evil forces and evil men everywhere when that occurs. But the good news is it will also be a signal of rapture and reward to all of those forces and friends of righteousness. Because as Paul said in Areopagus over in Acts 17 Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, speaking of our Lord. Not only in this future anticipation will this blessed hope result in the culmination of history. It will also result in the consummation of death. Death's a horrible thing and all of us have had to face it. I'm facing it literally right now with loved ones, and many of us have done it across the years, and we will do it as long as we're in this world. But it's an enemy. In fact, we are told it's the last enemy that is going to be destroyed. It's interesting to me how the destruction of death is connected with the return of Christ. At his coming, he says, this corruption will put on incorruption. At his coming, this mortal would pull on immortality. At his coming, death will be swallowed up in victory. At his coming, we shall write the epitaph for death and shout it across the wasted world of which you and I now live of grief and sorrow. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Several years ago, I was home, and I got a call from an associate pastor. The associate pastor asked me if it would be possible for me to hold a meeting in their church, said the pastor had wanted him to contact me. I wondered why the pastor himself did not contact me, but I was soon to find out. His pastor was riveted with cancer, very ill. And he said, our pastor had always wanted to have you for meeting and said he'd like for you to come before he ends his ministry in this world. And I asked, what do you mean? He said he's very ill and said he probably will not be unless God would intervene, be in the world very long. 
So immediately I said, I'll be glad to come. Whenever it's convenient for you, you tell me the schedule. I'll move everything out of the road and I'll come and hold a meeting. We set it up in May, I believe. My memory serves me right. And about a week before the meeting was to begin, I got another call from the associate. And he said to me, he said, Brother Purdue, he said, I don't know if we can have a whole meeting. He said, our pastor will insist on being there every night, and I don't think physically he's able to, and we're concerned for him. He said, would you mind just coming on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and holding the meeting? I said, no. I said, I'll be happy to do whatever works for him. And so we set that meeting up for Sunday morning and a Sunday evening, and my wife and I went to the church that morning. When we got there, they ushered us into the office where the pastor was with his wife. It's quite evident why his wife was there. The pastor had brain cancer, and tumors literally was protruding out all over his head. It was the most horrible sight, to say the least. And she, he wasn't able to get his thoughts together, and she was there to kind of interpret what he wanted for us, and we spent some time there and prayed in the office before we went out to the service. That morning after the singing I preached, the pastor and his wife was sitting in the front pew and the tears just ran down his face. God came in that service. It was almost a veritable Pentecost as many of his people came seeking around the altar and finding tremendous help in that meeting. Finally, after all was said and done and testimonies were given after the service, nobody seemed to worry about their meal. The pastor got up and said, Brother Produce, what I needed to see one more time in my ministry. And he was almost beside himself. After that service, we told them, my wife and I said, we'll just go ahead and eat our lunch together and we'll be back. Because we knew the pastor and his wife had enough to tend to. And so we went back that night. I was sitting on the platform as I was looking out across the congregation, but I couldn't see the pastor. The wife was there, but not the pastor. They had sung all the singing was over and the prayers were over. It's time for me to stand up. And I was about ready to read my scripture. When I did, I looked back in the back on the right-hand side and I watched two men come in with the pastor. The pastor was in his pajamas and they were there to help him, hold him up and bring him down and sit him on the front pew and sat beside him to keep him alert. Service was a wonderful service again. God came as he always will when we are faithful. I'll never forget after it's all over in the altar service and I knew when I left him I'd never see him again. And I embraced him and told him, I said, Pastor, we'll be praying for you. And it was almost like his mind got as clear as a bell. And he said, Brother Purdue, I'm excited about the prospect. I said, what? He said, I'm excited about what the future holds for me. I said, what does it hold for you? He said, look at me. It isn't going to be long. This corruption is going to put on incorruption. This mortal is going to put immortality. And that was on a Sunday, a week from Tuesday, he went home. I'm going to tell you something, folks. No matter whatever else you pursue in this world, you better pursue Faithfulness to the kingdom of God, because that's all that's going to matter in the end. For you see, it's not only necessary to have a future anticipation looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. There has to be a finished preparation for that inevitable event. 
And my concern, and <clears throat> you know, I've been traveling out here 42 years in evangelism, pastor before that. I can tell you, I worry that maybe we've learned to go through the religiosity of all this without really being ready. Without really being ready. I told my wife, I think it was this week or last week, I don't think I ever sensed God's warm hand on my heart and my life, and particularly my study as I have in these last couple of months. And I, I, I just want to be an open vessel through whom he can not only speak to, but speak through. And I've been praying that the indelible presence of God would be such that we, like Samuel of old, would simply say in these few services together, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. I don't want to just come and hear with this ear here. I want to hear with the inner ears of my soul. And folks, there is a deep facet in that regard. I don't want to go through just being religious. I'm weary with all this religiosity and even all this religious verbiage. We know how to talk it, but I wonder if we know what we're saying. Finished preparation. Jesus told us in one of his parables that getting ready for his return is like making preparations to attend a wedding. Do you know what that's all about? Here's one pastor would just as soon have a funeral as he would a wedding, but that, I'll leave that alone. <laughs> it's amazing to what extent we go in a wedding. One must have suitable attire if he attends a wedding. If you notice, I lifted those three things, the display of his grace at his first appearing in order to be ready for the disclosure of his glory at his second appearing, I want you to know one must be clothed with the grace of God provided for us in the first appearing if we ever share the glory of God in the second appearing of our Christ. What is that attire that he's speaking of? If you notice, he says, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Can I just break that down just loosely? And I wish I had time to go deeper in it. When he said he wants to, uh, gave himself to redeem us from all iniquity, that speaks of an emancipation. That speaks of a liberation. That not only means we're forgiven for our sins, he's gone down deeper in the well of our soul and cleansed us from all unrighteousness and we are redeemed from all iniquity. That's what we call liberty. He says, and purify. That's what we call purity. Purify peculiar people. That doesn't mean we're oddballs. Peculiar isn't used in that realm. Doesn't mean we're eccentrics. We are, many of us. But it means we have an identity with Christ. As he came and identified with us, Emmanuel, God with us, so he identified with us, he bore my sin to Calvary. By the way, folks, it was my sin that required his death. It was your sin that required his death. He was willing to identify with us. Are we willing to identify with him? And there's a whole matter of utility. So the clothing, if you're going to be ready for that day, if you're going to be ready for that wedding, requires liberty, purity, identity, utility. And by the way, in looking for Jesus, we're not to stand and stargaze. 
He said we're to occupy until he comes. We're to work with him. You know, you can date your conversion. I can mine. I can tell you the very day I got saved. February 1958. 58 years ago, I met Jesus. It was four weeks following that day I got sanctified. I can date that day in March of 1958. But I can tell you when it speaks of living soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, you cannot date that. It is a continual moment-by-moment walk with God, living constantly under the precious blood of Christ, because if we ever get out from under the blood, as Wesley would say, nothing but unholiness remains. Paul says in Ephesians, Christ loved the church. Now that's not the world. He gave himself for the world. But now that we are converted, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the separated ones, the born again Christian, he loved the Christian. But he gave himself for them too. Why? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it unto himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. And just in case he missed anything or any such thing, he said that he might present it unto himself a glorious church. In other words, folks, he is preparing the bride for his espousal. The time is coming very soon when we shall stand before him arrayed in fine linen, radiant white. Can I tell you, no angel, no angel has ever been as resplendent as that will be. Jesus will never have to apologize for the church. He'll never have to be ashamed of his bride when he brings them before the angels and presents her to the Father. He won't be ashamed of her. She will be washed. She will be clean. She will be sanctified. She will be a glorious bride. God the Father will look upon her with great approval. And the eternal purpose of God will have finally reached this consummation. And I can tell you, the Creator will see Himself mirrored in His bride. And they will be singing, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, the marriage of the Lamb has come and has made herself ready. We must be ready. I preach probably more now with desperation than I ever have. Because I see more urgently how necessary it is to be ready for that day. And that day is just around the corner. She will be ready. I uh, was thinking previous to my coming this morning, it just in my mind, I, uh, when I got saved, I had my breakfast. When God sanctified me, I had my lunch. And now I'm waiting to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. (laughs) I'm excited about the prospects. I tell you, I'm really excited about the prospect. I worry that somehow we have expected all of our psychology and all our psychoanalyzing and all of our philosophy and all this stuff to take the place of the powerful, efficacious blood of Jesus Christ. 
What can wash away my sin? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you this morning. We have uh, five services. And I think that revival sometimes, especially in these days when, when they are as brief as they are, I believe revival sometimes, or as much for the church, if not more for the church, than for the sinner. That's what revival means. Do you remember over in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came and those disciples, 120 in the upper room, were filled with the Holy Spirit, the cloven tongues like as a fire sat upon them, on them. They were all purged or cleansed, and they, be, uh, they were filled with the Spirit. It's interesting when you go to the fourth chapter of Acts. It said they were having a tremendous prayer meeting. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. That, wasn't the, that was not the fullness of purity. That occurred in Pentecost. That wasn't the fullness of cleansing. That's the fullness of constancy. And I can tell you why I'm saying this is because facing the world that's no friend of God or grace, living in a climate where we're having to face some of the most horrific things we have ever faced in our human lifetime, going through the battles of life, there's a tendency for us to get low spiritually. There's a tendency for us to get cold spiritually. There's a tendency to drift And if ever we need to be, quote, filled with the Holy Spirit, it's in times like this. This, In fact, this is the times of refreshing when Jesus comes and wants to warm the hearts of his children. My concern is, if he were to come today, would you be properly attired? Or would he have to say, no, I can't accept you? You say, why are you saying that? When I think of the bridegroom and the bride, and, and I'll close in just a moment, I'm going to ask Amy to come. When I think of the bridegroom and the bride, I think of a bride standing here with her entourage and her best, the best man and, and the ushers and the flower, all that is in readiness. And then I think of the organists that are all of a sudden strike up a unique hymn. It's called the bridal march. That is cue for the bride. I'm sorry, the bridegroom here. The bride back here coming on the arm of the father. Coming down to receive gladly the groom. I've often wondered, as hesitant as we are to respond to God coming forward to receive what he has for us. If I were a groom standing, waiting on my bride, and I look back and watch her be hesitant about coming down that aisle. I don't know if I want to go down there, that guy. I'm not sure. Go on. No, I don't know. I'd make an exit off that scene, wouldn't you? I'm not interested in that bride. I'll tell you, I've seen a lot of so-called the bride of Christ be just as reluctant as that. With the bridegroom, Jesus standing and waiting. No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I'm ready to, ah, sometime. I'll tell you one thing, folks. If you're ashamed of me here before man, he said, I'm going to be ashamed of you before the angels of God. I don't want him to be ashamed of me. 
I want to be ready, attired properly for that great day of marriage. Would you stand with me this morning as I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I don't want you to kneel unless you'd like to, of course, but that's not my purpose this morning. I wonder if you could come as she plays very softly near the cross and line across this front of the church and say, Lord, I want to know I'm properly attired for what that day when you call me home. Would you just start down? We're not going to wait. Just come and stand. And whatever you say to me this week, Lord, I want to respond obediently to your voice. And if there's something lacking in my attire, I want to know it. Just grab, move in real close, if you would. I, I just want us to have a prayer together, real close. The time is coming quickly, and the time we have is very short. What we do, we must do quickly. Just come on in. Just come on in. The grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. For we're looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. You, in your own way, ask God to speak to me this week, Lord, and let me ready myself for that day. In any way that you want me to, I want to be fully dressed when you come. Father, we need you. We long, Lord, that you would warm our hearts. We face tragedy and pain and heartache and sorrow, grief, bereavement, economic problems, physical problems. We're in a world like that, but you're mindful of that. We would ask, Lord, that in these next few services, you're going to speak to us. We're going to listen. We're going to walk in your light. Well, not because a man said it, but because you said it. Confirmed in your word. And there we see it. And one of these days, the books will be open. This will be one of those books. We want to walk in the light as you are in the light. We know it isn't long until we're going to make our way to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus, help us not to miss it. Help us not to miss it. As in your parable, there were some whose lamps were going out. The wedding was about to start and they missed it. Don't let us miss it. Help us to be ready. We love you today. We love his people. You love them. You know where they are. You know what they're going through. You're mindful of them. Cradle them in your arms this morning. Comfort their hearts this morning. Woo them to yourself this morning. Draw us nearer and nearer and nearer. Help us to be like the one that walked with Jesus. 
walked so far and so long with him. Jesus said, you're closer to my house than you are yours. And he took him on home. Help us to walk with you in that close association. Now we commit it to you today, Lord. And down through this next few days, may you manifest yourself in a very precious way to each one of our hearts. And we will give you the praise for it all in the matchless name of Jesus. We ask it. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Pray for the meeting. Pray for the rest of the week.